Greetings, comrades, and welcome to another episode of Chatter in the Skull. And today I've got a jam-packed episode for you. I've got quite a show. I'm all fired up because I've got a lot of things to talk about, at least that I want to talk about today. And today we are actually going to cover predominantly a new story from my home and native land, one that has been on a slow burn for the last couple of weeks, but is now really exploding into something quite extraordinary. I also want to spend some time talking about today. I saw this article that just made me think, oh, these poor kids, this is what the kids are dealing with these days. This is what it's like out there. Maybe I'm finally getting to the point where I'm feeling my real generational gap, but uh, man, I just feel like the, the quality and the direction of dating and relationships is on such a downward spiral that I am happy to be in the position that I am. But if this is the kind of crap you guys have to deal with in my heart and my soul, goes out to you. But anyway, we're going to talk a little bit about how capitalism effectively is poisoning our relationships and treating human beings like love commodities effectively is what we're being reduced down to. But that will be towards the end of the show. And I may have a surprise topic. I'm not sure yet, depending on how much time I spend talking about our first topic. So we're going to open it up with the bombshell even though i hate that term it just sounds much better than bomb bomb report it sounds like some sort of mid-2000s tween or something at the mall in any case this actual legitimate bombshell report came out a couple weeks ago although apparently the shell has a slow fuse because it's really just exploding now as we're talking so in case you don't know and you got you guys don't follow Canadian news that closely, but this is one that is actually starting to bubble up into international news. And I've seen it on some American news sites. I've seen it on The Guardian as well. So it's actually people around the world are talking about this a little bit. And this is, of course, the emerging reports. Let me just scroll down here. The emerging reports of Chinese election interference in Canada's elections. And oh boy, man, it's something else. And we're going to go over all these details as much as we can in the limited time that we have. But I want to give you guys an idea of what we're looking at here because it's some pretty dicey stuff. It's like actual dark room money being passed around by foreign governments, foreign governments funding Canadian politicians in our country and trying to get its preferred candidates elected into our actual government and spending money on the ground to do it. It's a pretty dicey stuff, that's for sure. But I'm going to jump around here just a little bit. I've got a good summary from the CBC that I'm going to show you guys before we jump into the actual article here. So we're flash forwarding here a little bit. This is going to show you some of the aftermath of this report and some of the things that are happening. And then we're going to go back and talk about it. And then we're going to flash forward again to our present day, exactly what's happening right now. All right, guys, let's watch this little uh, two minute summary from the CBC. And then we'll break it down in more detail and go from there. The prime minister headed into question period for an increasingly brutal political fight. The Prime Minister is more interested in protecting himself and protecting the electoral system. It's almost as, as if admires the basic Chinese communist dictatorship. The opposition pressing Justin Trudeau. Oh man, sorry. So you just saw there Jagmeet Singh, leader of the NDP. And then over here, Pauly Everett, he's a leader of the Conservative Party. 
And he is mentioning a quote from Trudeau that happened years ago. This before he became prime minister. This was when he was actually running for leader of the Liberal Party. I remember this. It was a big deal at the time. And it's like one of those moments. If you remember that Simpsons episode where Homer ends up commanding a submarine, they show off the file photo of him. And it's like him, like doing the Russian can-can and one of those Ushanka hats in front of the Kremlin. And Lisa's like, oh man, I told him that that picture would come back and bite him in the ass or something like that. This is the effective equivalent of that comment here. This comment that he made, he must have probably made it uh, relatively flippantly, man, probably a decade ago at this point at a meet the leader, meet the new face of the Liberal Party event. Basically, he said that he admires China's dictatorship. Because when they've got something that they really want to do, they get it done. And if they've got something good, they get it done quickly type of thing. He admired, basically it comes off of him saying like, he wished he could have the dictatorial power that the Chinese communists have in order to influence the world in his perceived way. So yeah, that's what Pierre was referencing in that particular comment. All right, let's continue over his handling of election meddling attempts by Beijing. It is unfortunate and despicable that any member in this house would question the loyalty to Canada of any other dear, member dear. in this house. No drama lesson will distract from the question that I asked. The question, the question was very clear. How much did the Liberal Party get in donations directed from Beijing? I've asked it multiple times. I find it incredible that he can't stand up and answer with a zero. This latest flare-up after Global News reported a high-level memo written for the Trudeau government warned Chinese officials had transferred money to a covert network aiming to interfere in the 2019 election. Whether That's one we're going to look at after this. Received money from China, as I've stated many times, we have no information on that. Why does he continue to state the diametric opposite of the truth in his answers? The Prime Minister, bombarded with questions, refused to specifically answer what he knew and when. I know that no matter what I say, Canadians continue to have questions about what we did and what we didn't. And that is why an independent special rapporteur is going to be able to look at the entire landscape and dig deeply into everything anyone knew. But the NDP leader says that's not enough. Jagmeet Singh says that Canadians' trust and confidence in the electoral system is eroding and that the only way forward is a public inquiry. Ashley Burke, CBC News, Ottawa. So the initial reporting on Chinese interference in Canadian elections was already starting to appear back in mid-February. But this one here from The Globe has been the one that is really getting people talking and like i said has really caused this eruption which is surprising honestly i hate the globe as a news network they are probably the worst news network in my opinion in canada i just find that their reporting is usually extraordinarily biased and oftentimes wrong in any case let me say though this piece however has done quite a bit to redeem them in my opinion so let's go over some of the really important details here. Justin Trudeau said he was never briefed on the issue and his security advisor has dismissed it out of hand, but two high-level national security reports before and after the 2019 election suggest that they were warned that the Chinese government officials were funneling money to Canadian political candidates. 
the two intelligence reports from 2019 and 2022 raise questions about what senior officials knew about the alleged funding by a foreign interference network and how seriously the Trudeau government took the warnings. One is a special report prepared by the Privy Council Office for the Trudeau government and was date-stamped January 2022. This memo was also finalized, suggesting it was intended to be read by Trudeau and his senior aides. Reviewed by the Global News, it asserted that Chinese officials in Toronto had disbursed money into a covert network tasked to interfere in Canada's 2019 election. A large clandestine transfer of funds earmarked for the federal election from the PRC consulate in Toronto was transferred to an elected provincial government official via staff member of a 2019 federal candidate, the Privy Council Office report stated. The document was derived from 100 Canadian Security Intelligence Services reports that were produced by the Intelligent Assessment Secretariat, the IAS, which is a division of the PCO that routinely provides national security reports for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his cabinet. A national security official explaining the report to Global News said that the finalized memo was about the intelligence gleaned from the ongoing high-level probe in the Greater Toronto Area launched in January of 2019. Global News granted intelligence sources anonymity, which they requested because of the risk of prosecution under the Security of Information Act. Intelligence sources said that the provincial official named in the connection with the alleged clandestine transfer from the Toronto Consulate is a member of Ontario's provincial legislature. When asked to confirm whether CSIS Director David Vingalt has briefed Trudeau or his staff and cabinet on the covert funding allegations, a CSIS spokesperson said, there are important limits to what I can discuss publicly given the need to protect sensitive activities, techniques, methods, and sources of intelligence. Regarding specific briefings on foreign interference during committee proceedings, okay, that's useless. That's just a bunch of gobble gobbledygook PR nonsense. So just a brief recap of what we've learned before we go on. Effectively, Justin Trudeau received a report on his desk in January of 2022, which said that China interfered in both the 2019 and 2021 elections, and they have direct evidence of the communist government of China, the PRC, funneling money to political candidates through their consulate, which is located in Toronto, Canada. And the way they do that, according to this report, is that they take the money, they transfer it to a staffer who works with a provincial member of parliament. So that's like a state congressperson, if you're in the United States, the equivalent of a state congressperson. So someone who works on the state level, not the federal level. So they funnel it into a state staffer who then takes that money, funnels it to a provincial politician or a state politician, and they then take that money and then funnel it onwards to a candidate or party or wherever it needs to go to from there. So it gets funneled through these kind of layers of activity in order to try and hide its origin point. Moving on. And by the way, CSIS, it's like the equivalent of the CIA. 
for Canada. So they're like our, our top intelligence guys or what have you. In any case, moving on. Global News also learned of an earlier high-level warning about a clandestine funding of China's preferred candidates that came from the bipartisan panel of parliamentarians two months before the 2019 election. The information came from Canada's National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians, which reviews national security matters and promotes government-wide accountability. Established by Trudeau in 2017, it reports to the Prime Minister, the same panel, Trudeau appointed Monday with the mandate to look into the allegations of Chinese interference that Global first reported back in November. However, Trudeau's tasking of the NSI COP and the Super Repertoire did not address the growing calls from national security experts who recommended a public inquiry to investigate the allegations. Foreign states clandestinely direct contributions to Canadian politicians under the subtitle Targeting the Political Nomination Process and Preferred Candidates. The report says that the targeting often begins during the nomination process. So the nomination process is before someone is actually nominated to run in the election. They have to run in their political party and get nominated by their members of the party before they can run in the general election. Similar to in the United States. However, in most parliamentary systems, like the one we have here in Canada, the parties have a lot more leeway in terms of who they can say can run under our banner and who can't. American parties have a lot less leeway when it, when it comes to that, which it's definitely a good thing when you only have a two-party system. But in any case, that's a conversation for another time. After the nomination process, the review continues, foreign states clandestinely contribute contributions and support for their campaigns and political parties of their preferred candidates. While the document did not examine specific interference activities directed at the 2019 federal election, it offered several examples of alleged Chinese election interference from 2015 to 2018 that involved the targeting and funding of candidates. The People's Republic of China Embassy, Interlacor, founded a group of community leaders called sorry that's that's hilariously ironic they founded a group of community leaders called the tea party to handpick candidates that would support and would ultimately publicly endorse it added that a former prc commercial consul and former prc businesses of the rules regarding canadian political contributions and urged particular business leaders to donate through Canadian subsidiaries and acquisitions. So that's an important point, that people with ties to the Chinese government who own businesses in Canada are donating to their preferred candidates. So that is how they're getting around certain rules and regulations in the Canadian political system that the Chinese government is deferring to zoners and community leaders that may live here but still have ties back to the government. In November, Global News first reported on intelligence from January 2022 special report which revealed allegations of a sophisticated election interference network orchestrated by the Chinese consulate in Toronto to interfere with the October 2019 contest. The group allegedly involved at least 11 candidates and 13 or more aides. Sources also said an Ontario member of provincial parliament, so that's the state 
or provincial politician played a role, and that group included liberals and conservatives who are both witting and unwitting participants. Very interesting. So it, it's bipartisan. And some of the times these people can just be cogs in the machine and not necessarily know that uh, they're part of some sort of devious plot to interfere in an election. And the same story, Global News also reported that this clandestine transfer of funds allegedly involved the consulate using a regime-friendly group tactic to act as an intermediary to disperse $250,000 to a staff member of a 2019 federal candidate. When asked in December if Global News got anything wrong in its earlier reporting, Trudeau, <laughs> Trudeau denied knowledge of the alleged Chinese disbursements. I never got in all the briefings and all the security briefings I got, I never got briefings on candidates receiving money from China when appearing before the National Defense Committee late last year, Trudeau's National Security and Defense Advisor, Jody Thomas, was asked about the alleged funding of candidates by China. The news stories that you have read about the interference are just that, news stories, Thomas said in December. I'll just say it, we have not seen money going to these 11 candidates, period. Anyway, let's see if we can blow through all this corpo speak. Beijing's extensive network of quasi-official and local community interest groups allowed it to obfuscate communication and the flow of funds between Canadian targets and Chinese officials. Also, according to the document, community leaders and co-opted political staffers under broad guidance from the Toronto consulate served as intermediaries between Chinese officials and politicians Beijing was seeking to influence. The outcome of these operations, the document says, is that staff of targeted politicians would provide advice on China-related issues to the Chinese consulate. The document added that other network operators handled the financing and the attempt to recruit Canadian politicians. Okay, here we go. Government officials have long insisted that foreign interference did not compromise the overall integrity of the 2019 and 2021 elections. Last week, CSIS Director Van Gult agreed with this assessment, but suggested that Canada create a registry that tracks foreign agents engaging in political activity to mitigate election interference. On Monday, Trudeau reiterated a promise. Sorry, this is just ridiculous. On Monday, Trudeau reiterated an earlier promise that the government would start consultations on starting such a registry. So they're not even going to say, yes, we're going to do it. No, we're going to talk to people about doing it. We assess that Canada remains highly vulnerable to Chinese foreign interference efforts, the 2022 PCO document asserts. We base this judgment on the intelligence that highlights the deep and persistent Chinese Communist Party interference attempts made over the last decade. Wow. Big article. Lots of stuff in there. Let's do a brief recap. So we're not going to go over this article. It just is one of the points I want to recap. So basically what has happened is that the Chinese government has been funneling money to its preferred politicians. And these politicians are not necessarily just liberal. They can come from both sides of the political spectrum. In fact, one of the things that the document says is that the Chinese government's preferred outcome is a liberal minority, which is exactly what they got. And their thinking was is because minority is less stable than a majority government, and liberal over conservative because the liberals are perceived as being 
more friendly to China, which I would definitely say is a fair assessment by the Chinese government. In any case, so the prime minister had received not just one, but two reports over the years about Chinese election interference, which he apparently has read or is supposed to have read because it had crossed his desk or had crossed one of his senior advisors' desk at some point, but either he has not read it or didn't take it seriously, or he's just flat out lied about not reading the report. Because the, right now, this is his defense about this whole Chinese election interference thing, which is, oh, I didn't know, man. I didn't know. It's not a defense. It's not a defense, bro. Anyway, so you have multifaceted issues here. One, obviously, you have the hard-nosed election interference. You have the fact that a foreign government is funneling dark money to Canadian politicians to try and influence our politics. But then there's the fact that our prime minister is right now stonewalling everybody on this effectively. He stonewalled people for about a week on this, which makes him look incredibly suspicious. Then he comes out and says, no, we're not going to have a public inquiry about this. And then after getting more and more and more pushback, he comes out and says, okay, we're going to have this sort of branch of government that I set up in 2017, investigate this report with investigators that are chosen by me and will report directly to me, which I can then decide what I do with when we're all done. So he comes out and says that we're doing that. We're not doing a public inquiry. We're not doing a public investigation. We're doing this other thing, which is basically a really, really watered down version. Of it. So you have the fact that not only is this happening, but the prime minister was warned about it by our intelligence agencies and whether through the competence or due to the fact that he has an affinity for the Chinese, which a lot of people are alleging. So it's either incompetence or malice in this case. And either way, it doesn't look good for Trudeau. So this is where we are now, effectively, is Trudeau is saying that, I didn't know about this election interference, but don't worry, guys. I'm going to call this like really half-baked inquiry into it. It isn't going to answer to Parliament. is isn't going to answer the Canadian public. going to answer to me directly. Oh, wouldn't you look at that? I happen to be the preferred candidate of the Chinese government. Whoa, isn't that weird? Okay, well, we better close the book on that one, guys. Let's not look too closely into that. It's unbelievably fucked up. And I think that Canadians coast to coast are extremely mad about this and are extremely skeptical that Trudeau is actually taking this seriously because, again, he was the preferred candidate of the Chinese Communist Party. Underneath the article where we just saw that video, we have the comments field here. There is currently 10,345 comments. This is more comments than I've seen on a CBC story ever. I have never seen five-digit comment counts on a CBC story, and they are all extremely, extremely negative. The top one here, I'm 65 years old. And I've never seen such a scandalous and incompetent government. Trudeau must go. I suppose the next thing Trudeau will do is prorogue Parliament. Don't be surprised. Prorogue means when you hit the pause button and send everybody home. That's kind of like a hoping that people will forget about this and their memories will refresh. Trudeau will burn the party to the ground trying to protect his imaginary image of himself. Worst prime minister in Canadian history. I nominate whoever's leaking these documents for the Order of Canada National Hero. Okay, so yeah, as you can see, people are very upset. And CBC, you know that certain websites and certain news places have audiences that have a political bent. 
And by and large, the CBC bent is left-leaning. So to see so many people out here and so vociferously angry against Trudeau, it's definitely not a good sign for him because of people angry on the CBC. People here in rural Alberta are probably sharpening their knives. But for me personally, I believe this guy, he's got to go. He 100% has to go. He has to resign. If he sticks around, can't see him not handing the keys over to Pierre Polyevra, who is the leader of the Conservative Party. Don't really have very high opinions of the man. Have very low opinions of Trudeau as well. So it's a really, really tough race to the bottom for who I hate more. Obviously, I am a big fan of Jagmeet Singh. And that's the one thing that frustrates me so much as a Canadian. It's like, you, you don't just have one left-wing party you can vote for. You can vote for another one. There is another choice out there. You do not have to vote for the Liberal Party over and over and over again. You have another choice. This isn't America. So obviously, my wildest dreams, I would like to see some sort of NDP government in charge of the country. However, I simply do not see that happening. I see that the Liberals' polling numbers have been tracking poorly. In fact, let's do a little bit of a checkup here. Indian. Just so you guys can see where we are. So this is 338, one of those great election aggregate tools. Ah, here we go. Perfect. This is what I mean. So here we go. As we can see under the 338 projection, the liberals have been lagging and the conservatives have been picking up a little bit right now. They lead by about two points. Not that much, but I imagine that after this starts to really gain some steam, I do think that the Conservatives are going to gain a considerable amount of support from this. And I'm hoping that people will start looking at the NDP as well. I think that one thing Jagmeet Singh really needs to do is maybe not look at supporting the Liberal Party. That is my biggest complaint about him personally. He is, to me, too closely aligned to Justin Trudeau too closely aligned to the Liberal Party and not independent enough for my personal opinion. But in any case, that's just my own political rant. I see the Conservatives definitely being a huge beneficiary of this because one thing that the Conservatives have always managed to portray themselves as is consistently anti-China. It's been one of their branding hallmarks ever since Harper took over the party. But yeah, it's not like the Liberal Party doesn't have other members that could run and could do a really good job and potentially win right now as things are going. Yeah, I can see Pierre Polyevra getting tons of political points from this. One of the things he's really good at is he's really good at playing like the culture war kind of issues, like the anti-woke stuff and that kind of crap. He's really good at rallying people around that sort of stuff. And he's going to be able to really, obviously, rally his base around or rally people around this because it's pretty obvious corruption, right? He's getting served like the softest of softest, like political balls right now. And if he's not able to hit a couple home runs after this scandal, he is really not a very skilled politician. So yeah, if he doesn't gain massive traction out of this, I will be very surprised. And I do think that the liberals will probably keep this guy on. I don't think they should. I think they should dump him now immediately, do another leadership race. I think this will be probably their only hope to cling on to power in, in, in the near term. I think if the NDP were smart, they should think about abandoning their support for the coalition. 
I mean, I think they actually have a, a deal. So maybe, I don't think they can do that. Like they actually have like a contract basically that they can't break. I should double check that. But either way, the NDP should seriously think about distancing themselves as much as they possibly can from the Liberal Party at this point and setting themselves up to be a credible and pure alternative, a pure left-wing alternative to what the kind of culture war politics that Conservatives and Pierre Polly ever are going to bring for us. But the Liberals have lots of candidates to replace Trudeau with. He is no longer the face of the party. If anything, he is a drag on the party and the party would be able to rebound if they were able to find a competent leader. But at this point, Trudeau, he's well past his political prime, right? He's at that point where I personally, I'm just tired of hearing the guy. I'm tired of seeing the guy. I'm tired of hearing his voice. I'm tired of looking at his face. I just want him to go. I want him to go away and never be seen. So he's at that point where people will just vote to get rid of him because they're tired of looking at him. And that puts Pierre Polyever in a pretty good position if he's facing Justin Trudeau and if he's able to continue to score political points off this, then that is going to even further solidify his position. And here's the thing, give you guys some indoor political baseball, like talk strategy with people from all sides, the political spectrum. So I was talking with a guy, a conservative guy, he's really riding Polyev's dick really hard, loves the guy. And he's telling me like, like, and he's like a guy who actually has connections in the party. That's one of the reasons why I really like talking to him is because he can give me kind of an insight and in what machinations are going on behind the scenes and the conservative political scene here in Canada. In any case, he's telling me like right now, and this may have changed because it's probably about four months ago. He's telling me that the conservative plan to win the next election is to try and undercut NDP support by appealing to union voters and working class people and that sort of stuff. And I, I don't think that that will be successful for a couple reasons, because one, I, I don't think it'll work in peeling off voters. And two, the only way that the conservatives are going to be able to gain a majority is if they have a strong NDP at the expense of the Liberals, which is what happened in 2011 when the NDP became the official opposition because the Liberal Party seemed so weak and inept that basically the NDP were able to surge into a second place position and the Liberals fell to third place. But on the backs of that shift, the Conservatives were able to gain their first majority of the... Yeah, I think it is their first and only majority they've had in Parliament in the 21st century. I believe so. In any case, I might be wrong on that one, but I think it's so far the only majority the Conservatives have had in the 21st century. If they actually want to gain a majority government, they, they need a stronger NDP. They need the Liberals to collapse in favor of the NDP. But that's neither here nor there. That's just a, another random anecdote I wanted to share with you guys. So that's the state of Canadian politics, guys. Our prime minister is a stooge for China, effectively, and everybody and their mother at this point wants him to resign, but it seems unlikely that he will. It seems pretty unlikely that he will at this point. With enough ranting and raving about Canadian politics out of the way, I don't think we're going to get to our surprise topic today. So we're going to jump into our more fun topic which is something that made me think, of, I read this story recently that made me think about the state of relationships currently in our society. And it made me sad. It made me sad. And it's funny because this is something I'm thinking about more and like looking into the future of relationships and where these trends are going because I, as you guys know, have a daughter 
and my wife is pregnant with our second child who will be born potentially any moment, it seems. So that's coming very, very shortly. In any case, so I start to think about, and I start to look into the future, what relationships are going to look like for my children and what the dynamic is going to be like for them. And it makes me sad to think about because the way things look right now, it looks pretty grim. It looks pretty grim. So this is something we haven't really talked about on the show for a little while. Thought it might be a fun departure. So let me show you guys the story that I read that got me thinking in the first place. And that is from, this is like a random kind of like meme site or whatever that sometimes comes up on my feed called Board Panda. They do a lot of really good anti-work stuff too, which is part of the reason why I think it shows up on my feed. But anyway, this article says that woman puts her boyfriend on performance improvement plan and people can't decide whether it's weird or genius. Cross weird out with creepy, and then you might have more what people really think than over weird. But in any case, let's dive into some of the details here. So I'll very briefly touch on some of the details of this article, and then we'll, uh, we'll watch the actual video that it's based off. It's been making the rounds, not just on this website. I've seen it on a couple of different websites. So it's been, it's going a little viral. And uh, we'll read what it says here. When people say that relationships are work, they generally mean that for them to succeed, both parties need to make an effort and not take each other for granted and so on. Usually when you say and so on, you have like more than just one thing. In any case, after all, your partner or your spouse isn't your parent or child that takes care of you or needs to be constantly managed. But this couple decided to take the work aspect of their relationships very seriously. And I feel like when they say this couple, it's more this woman had this idea and then gave it to her boyfriend type of thing. And then they did it. In a viral TikTok, a woman details how she used the management techniques when her and her boyfriend were struggling. She put him on probation and used daily and weekly task sheets to help him focus. And perhaps surprisingly, it worked and they are still together. All right, buckle up. Let's watch this war crime and see exactly what she says in her own words. So my boyfriend and I were having a lot of issues in the beginning, like a lot. And ultimately, I felt like we weren't compatible, even though we had a lot of love for each other. So as a last straw, we decided to do like a performance improvement plan. And before you come at me, I know it's harsh to some of you, but he's an engineer. And sometimes it's really hard to communicate with him without using something that he can already relate to. Plus, he liked it. So we had a shared note with daily and weekly tasks he needed to do and a set of things that he needed to work on. And it worked out really well. Like even now for our household chores, things that he's responsible for, we use a Kanban board. That has been the only thing that has stuck and works. Like anything I need done, I just add it onto the Kanban board and he'll get it done. But if I just tell him, he'll forget about it. We also do weekly retrospectives where we check in with each other at the end of each week to see how we're doing. And that's my favorite. Okay, brutal. I had to actually look up what a Kanban board was for this video. This is what it is. It's one of those things where I've seen these before, but I didn't know that they had an actual name. As you may know, I'm not in tech or anything like that. So some of the terms that you used were unfamiliar to me. But before I go over some of these comments here, because they're amazing, I'll talk about how I would handle this situation if I were this guy. Let me tell you, I would not handle it very maturely. That is for sure. Like, I don't know exactly what I'd say <laughs> if it were 
if it were my wife that comes up to me with something like this, there are two possibilities depending on how I'm feeling. But the long and short of it, when people ask me to do things, it usually doesn't go very well. I don't, I don't handle it very well. Like as she comes at me and I'm off guard, I'll probably like just be the belligerent, just be belligerent. It's like performance improvement plan. I got your performance improvement plan right here. But if I'm actually smart and able to think about it a little bit, I'll probably say something like, oh, that's great. But before I take a look at your performance improvement plan, why don't I go get mine and then we'll look them over together. But to my wife's credit, she had never once ever given me one of those sort of honeydew lists or anything like that. And, and it is very good because again, it would not end well. Because it's either going to end with the list just crumpled up and thrown in the trash right in front of her. Or if I wanted to give her an experience of what it's like to be married to an Indian person, I would, I would tell her, yep, don't worry. Oh, absolutely. It's going to get done. And then just not do it. And then not, not never do it. And then when she asks, oh, what happened? Oh, I just come up with an excuse. Oh, my back hurt. Oh, it's too hot outside. I had a stomach ache. Whatever. I'll get it done. And then you just never do it. That's why Indian people were never really well ruled over because they'd always just tell their overseers, yeah, do whatever you want. No problem, man. And then they just never do it. But for all the laying into her, I do want to say the one thing that she brought up that I do think is really smart and helpful in any kind of, not just romantic relationship, but any relationship with another person is finding a way to communicate to that other person on their own terms, right? That's one of the things about human beings. One of the things I guess that always really bother me about people like in the red pill community is that they act like all people are in the same way all the time. And for them, it's specifically women. And that if you just put in the right inputs, you'll get the right outputs. But human beings aren't like that at all. Human beings are vastly different from one another. We have different forms of communication that we prefer depending on the individual. We have different ways that we absorb information. And one method of communication that's effective for one person isn't always going to be effective for everybody. So the idea of her finding a way to relate to her boyfriend on terms that he could understand and that he was familiar with is actually really smart and super intelligent and a super healthy way to communicate with somebody, but it becomes really condescending and creepy when you put it in this, not only work mode, when you take this kind of like work mentality and put it into relationships, but also when you put it on this dynamic that you are the one that is higher up in the relationship. Because to me, and what I've always believed is that an effective relationship is a partnership, two people on the same level working together for a common goal. But the way she frames this is she's the manager and he's the employee, like she's the superior and he's the subordinate. And that to me is pretty toxic. But let's go through these comments here. Some of them are, like I said, pretty amazing. This is so condescending. Of course, I like this one here. How do you feel about still having to manage him though? Is there a plan for him to become his own manager? A path to promotion? <laughs> as you might call it. And that's another thing that I really, really dislike about the way that this is framed is that again, because it's the kind of employee employer 
relationship, the superior subordinate role. And I know about you guys, like my ideal state, and this is, I think the ideal state for all socialists is that you want no boss above you and no servants below you that obviously want everybody to be equal. And in a relationship, I don't want to be managing somebody else. I don't want to be telling them what to do. I don't want to be posting shit on a fucking post-it board. I don't want to have to micromanage people. That sounds ridiculous. That sounds like a hell on earth. Very, very uncomfortable, unfortunate way of being. But this one right here to me is so great. Late stage capitalism is truly hell. I want to come back to this a little bit. I want to go through a couple of, the, of these other comments and then end on that last point, because there's a couple other things I do want to say here. The weekly Kanban board. Oh man, that's, that's brutal. But here, what I thought this Baxter guy is my thoughts almost exactly when I heard this story is like, so does he do the same for you? It's important that both sides improve. And again, it goes back to what I, I felt was really toxic about the way she framed this is that it seemed like she was the one demanding all the improvement and not doing anything on her own, that she was the one making the demands foisting all this stuff on him and not really in her own way trying to improve herself. So I actually think that this would be a lot better if they came together and were both like, okay, we have ways that we can both improve and things that we can both improve on and work on together. And maybe you're making this performance improvement plan is a collaborative project that like you and him are working together and finding topics in the relationship that you can both improve on as a whole. That sounds way better than here's your list of demands, bud. Put them on the fucking Kanban board. Get that shit done or you're out of here. I don't know why I gave this Asian woman a Southern accent. In any case, they should have this to their LinkedIn. Okay. So anyway, the one thing I want to go back to is up here is late stage capitalism is truly held. Because when it comes to this phrase, I think it's somewhat of a good example of late stage capitalism and somewhat not a good example. This is a term you've probably heard thrown around a lot, probably on any side of the political spectrum. If you're left or right, you've probably heard this at some point, but it's definitely more of a thought theory that is associated with the left because it derives from Marxist thinking and Marxist theory. So what this means specifically and relation specifically to Marx and uh, communist and, and socialist thinking it, in late stage capitalism, what capitalism would eventually evolve into. And this is something about Marxism, whether or not you consider yourself a Marxist, whether or not you subscribe to his philosophical theories, one of the things you should read is his critiques of capitalism, because regardless of what you think of what he, what he thought came after capitalism, his critiques are incredibly poignant and it's like they become more and more real every day. But one of his big critiques is this idea that in late stage capitalism, that as capitalism continues to evolve as an ideology and force in our lives, what will eventually end up happening is that everything will be commodified and sold as good or product and become a capitalist force or capitalist commodity. And one of the examples he specifically uses is like the commodification of 
relationships and friendships and human experiences, that sort of thing, which to him at the time was a much more alien concept, right? The idea of a part of a relationship being something that is bought or sold or has a monetary transaction attached to it, probably, I don't think it was very real in his time. There is, of course, the idea of marriage as an idea of solidifying relationships and dowries and that kind of stuff. But this idea, like, if you were lonely, you could buy companionship. That was alien to him in his time. But the commodification of relationships and parts of relationships are a very real thing. It is starting to happen here in the Western world. In a country like Japan, they have it down to a science country, which has a lot of good things going forward. But the way it treats relationships and human interactions is pretty fucked up, to say the least. And what I mean here is that in Japan, you can have every aspect of a relationship parceled out for you and you can purchase it and buy it piecemeal so it's like you just want to have somebody to talk to and have a conversation with you can buy a hostess or a host at a bar that will just sit and talk to you and have a conversation with you you just want to be cuddled you can buy time for someone to cuddle you you just want someone to fuck you you just buy a prostitute it's a hall set out it's getting to the point where there are things like you can buy a service that people will send you nice messages and nice text messages in the morning or I love you. Hope you're having a great day. You're the best type of thing sent by some random chick. She's got like 55 of these. She's got to send to every dude at the beginning of every morning. And I see things like that coming into Western culture too. The thing that comes to mind immediately is something like OnlyFans where you, where people buy into it, not just for the sexy pictures, but for this intimate connection or the idea that you're having a more intimate connection with someone you actually know, rather than just some random chick in a porno that you saw. It's to try and build that more intimate part of a relationship. But of course there is the monetary value that's attached to it. That is the part of late stage capitalism that Marx was critiquing and that we can see playing out in front of us. It's to me, I can see it dehumanizing us almost in front of our eyes, especially the way people talk about dating and relationships. Like they bring in all these kind of like capitalist terms and like economic terms to talk about it. And it's like, this is my sexual market value. And I'm going to increase my sexual market value by eating beans and working out got to enter the sexual market, the sexual competition. I'm hoping that I can trade up to a new partner as if we're fucking car models or cell phones or some shit. That kind of stuff is, well, not as corrosive as this kind of devolving every aspect of a relationship and monetizing it. That kind of thinking is certainly detrimental to relationships, in my opinion, because it dehumanizes them and it makes them seem like work. I, I don't think that, well, yes, relationships are work and yes, you need to be doing things for each other. The thing is like these things that you do for each other, they don't come out of a place of feeling forced to do it or because you want to improve your performance or get more points on your grid or some shit. It's you do it because you love that other person. Like we talked about in our philosophy and politics of the menu that an act of service 
brought out of love is the most pure and wholesome thing that you can do to show another person that you care about them, at least in my opinion. And that's the part that is really, I think, dangerous for a relationship over the long term is when you start to associate these things that you do for another person with work and this idea that this is something you just have to do to keep the relationship afloat rather than this is something you're doing out of love and appreciation for another human being. These are two very fundamentally different ways of seeing the relationship. And while they may yield the same results in the short term, over the long term, if you're just doing these things to keep things afloat, eventually that's going to build resentment and hatred and lead to the collapse of the relationship. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of people view relationships as commodities these days, as something to be bought, traded, or something that the human aspects and human connection of it doesn't really matter. What matters is how it improves the balance on my sexual market value or improves the balance on my life value spreadsheet or whatever you want to say. I think this is forced a tendency, especially in women, but sometimes in men too. This is definitely not exclusive to women where they kind of sit and wait for the relationship to be almost like a lottery ticket. Like they sit around and wait for the time that they can have the person that comes and fulfills all their boxes and is the richest, tallest, whatever, blah, 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 blah. Because there's no point in going for anything else at this point and at this late stage capitalist society. Because effectively, all the relationships have been told to a lot of young people is that they are tools for value creation in your life. You've got to find myself a high value man, high value woman or whatever. Like again, where these fucking products on a shelf to be selected and uh, purchased at any time. Not like we're again, actual independent human beings that have different thoughts and feelings and ways of interacting in the world. And I do think that the young chicks get a bad rap, but really they're playing the hand that they're dealt. They're playing the cards they're dealt in the system that they're growing up in, that they live in. And guys are having to adapt and do the exact same thing. They're having to play the hand that they're dealt and it fucking sucks for everyone. So I see a lot of guys blaming girls and girls blaming guys for the shitty state of the dating market. And we need to take a step back and realize that it's neither of our faults that we, again, are just trying to play the cards that were dealt. And maybe it's time to start thinking about getting ourselves some better goddamn cards. I want people, if that's what you want to do, you want to start a family, get together, have kids, that should be a lot easier in our current society to do that than it is now. People think that socialists or lefties or whatever want to take away traditional lifestyles or whatever absolutely not again i'm a guy who lives a quote-unquote traditional lifestyle i just a recognize that my lifestyle isn't superior to anybody else's and b i want people to live the lives that they want to live regardless if that's a traditional lifestyle a non-traditional lifestyle you want to live in a polyamorous commune you go live in a polyamorous commune, man or woman. I don't care at all. You want to go do cocaine at your partner's asshole? Go for it. That affects me and my life in absolutely 
no way, shape, or form. Anyway, I think that's going to bring me to the end of this segment. I've gone on for a really long time in this episode, I realized. And I want to wrap it up quickly with our feel-good story of the day. And this is a big one that has just come out very recently and is starting to already make a lot of buzz, which is physicists claim creation of a superconductor at near ambient conditions. This is from Science Alert. This is from today, the day I'm recording this, March 9th. So it reads, few discoveries in science would revolutionize technology as much as a material that achieves superconductivity at a room temperature under relatively mild pressures. A team of physicists led by Ringa Diaz, a physicist from the University of Rochester in New York, now claims they might have cracked it, demonstrating a rare earth material called lutetium, combined with hydrogen and nitrogen, conduct electricity without resistance at 21 degrees Celsius, 7 degrees Fahrenheit, largely considered room temperature, and around just 10,000 atmospheres of pressure, the team reports. To be fair, that sounds like a lot. It, <laughs> if confirmed by other researchers, this would be a huge breakthrough in creating devices that don't waste energy on heat when producing a current, Ideally, this could be used to create more efficient computers, faster frictionless maglev trains, superior X-ray technology, and even more powerful nuclear fusion reactors. With this material, the dawn of the ambient superconnectivity and applied technologies has arrived, team said in a press release. The researchers have dubbed the material red matter due to the material dramatically changing from blue to pink as it becomes superconductive and later to red as it becomes a non-superconductive material. Before you get too excited, keep in mind, this is now just one team of researchers sharing their observations. The data has been published in the prestigious journal Nature and is sure to draw plenty of debate. There's already plenty of healthy skepticism out there in the physics world. One of the main concerns is that this same group of researchers published similar claims of a superconductor breakthrough at room temperature back in 2020. This claim was later retracted by nature due to issues with reproducibility and questions over the data. Superconductivity is such a big deal because usually when electricity flows through wires, say from going to the power plant to your home, or through the internal circuitry of your smartphone, it is met with friction. This resistance results in energy, such as heat being lost. Back in 1911, researchers identified that there were some materials that lost this resistance under extreme cold and high pressure. In these extreme conditions, the quantum behaviors of electrons inside superconductors strengthen to allow them to form what are known as copper pairs, allowing them to travel through the material with perfect efficiency. Superconductivity is relatively easy to spot as it results in a material expelling magnetic flux fields. But getting materials to superconduct at temperatures and pressure levels that are efficient and practical has been incredibly challenging and something that physicists have spent decades working on. The team from the University of Rochester claimed that they have now been able to get to be able to get 
close to this with red matter. To create the material, the researchers developed a gas mixture that was made up of 99% hydrogen and 1% nitrogen. Left in a chamber with lutetium for a few days at 200 degrees Celsius, the components reacted to form a striking blue compound. The team then placed the material inside a diamond anvil, which was used to put the materials under extreme pressure. As the pressure increased, the materials underwent a marked visual transformation, going from blue to pink as it became superconductive, something the team confirmed by measuring the magnetic fields around the material and its electrical conductivity. That's super dope. I just love the way that looks. That looks like something from like a sci-fi like building game, like some sort of futuristic building material in Factorio or something. That's awesome. As the pressure continued to build, the material turned bright red, passing through its superconductive phase into a non-superconductive metallic state. Red matter displayed superconductivity at around 21 degrees when compressed to a pressure of 140,000 pounds per square inch. This is still roughly 10,000 times pressure of the Earth's atmosphere, so it would require the right kinds of structures and equipment to make practical use of it. It's unlikely you're going to have these your phone supercomputers anytime soon. But it's a significantly lower pressure than other candidates for room temperature superconductors, which require millions of times the atmospheric pressure. This is one of the big issues that researchers aren't entirely sure of the exact structure of red matter. This makes it hard to understand how it's becoming superconductive. There are indicators that it may be achieving superconductivity through a different mechanism to other superconductors. A physicist, Quang Jin Kin and David Chipperley, who weren't involved with the research, note in accompanying Nature New and Views articles. This structural model suggests there is relatively little hydrogen present in the author's samples compared with similar superconducting compounds, they write. Further research will be needed to confirm that the material is a, is a high-temperature superconductor and then to understand whether this state is driven by vibration-induced copper pairs or by an unconventional mechanism that is yet to be uncovered. Dias admits that there is still a lot to be understood about how red matter achieves superconductivity, but he remains optimistic red matter is an important first step, even if it doesn't end up being the best superconductor out there. In day-to-day -day life, we have many different metals that we use for different applications, so we may need different types of superconducting materials, said Diaz. Pathway to superconducting consumer electronics, energy transfer lines, transportation, and significant improvements of magnetic confinement for fusion are now a reality, he said. We believe that we are now at the modern superconducting era. Wow. Again, that is an incredibly, incredibly bold claim. So we will have to see how these results are tested and replicated. It is concerning that they tried to push this out two years ago, but ended up retracting it. Then again, that could just be how science works over these last three years, more rather, not two years. They have spent time perfecting and researching and coming up with new methods. So maybe this time they've really got it. Who knows? But it's definitely something to be keeping an eye on and something that we shall be following in the future.
Because if it is true, yes, that's incredibly big that we are getting on the cusp of like real supercomputing and real crazy shit happening. And yeah, could be happening sooner rather than later. But I don't know. It's always good to be skeptical when you hear things like this and good to take them with a grain of salt because they're not going to change the world overnight. But it is something to be thinking about as we move forward into the future. And it certainly unlocks a lot of new possibilities for us. All right, guys, that's going to bring me to the end of this episode. It's actually been a very long episode, way longer than I thought it was going to be. And I even had, like I said, a secret topic that I was going to throw in there, but it didn't end up coming to fruition. But with that, this brings us to the end of another Chatter in the Skull. So I want to thank you guys for watching. This has been the Comrade. Signing up for now. You guys take care.